courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. <laughs> Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Coming up on Money Beat, it is time for the book club. That's right. This month's selection is the 2010 Pulitzer Prize winner, Lords of Finance, The Bankers Who Broke the World, a colorful, well-written history of the most powerful bankers in the 1920s and 30s by Leah Ahmed and special treat. We will be speaking with the author. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome to Money Beats Book Club. That's right. We're doing the book club again. We did it before, and uh, it, got, it was so well regarded. Everyone loved it. We loved it here. Apparently, at least three of you loved it out there because we, we certainly heard from some folks. We decided we're what was that? <laughs> you just sort of mumbled <laughs> right through that. <laughs> uh, I'm so excited about book club. I, I can't even form entire words. I'm just so excited about book club. Uh, Paul and Steve here in the studio in New York, joined by many. Wall Street Journal reporters, because everybody wants a piece of the book club. Ben Eisen, whose idea this was, and Ben, we have to give you so much credit for starting this and doing it and, and making it the success that it is. Chris Dietrich, Stephanie Yang, who suggested this month's book, or, or so far this year's book. And on the phone, he's on vacation, folks. He was so into book club, he had to call in Aaron Kurloff. From the top hey. of some mountain, right? <laughs> Whiteface in the, the Adirondack. Wow. Wow. Okay, everyone. So, Stephanie, you picked the book. Yes. I want you to introduce it to the the good folks at home and uh, start us off. Okay, so the book is Lords of Finance, and I actually learned about it from listening to another podcast in which it was suggested. And uh, another another Money Beat podcast. Well. Oh my God! I did not. <laughs> I did not expect that to be the curveball it was. Oh, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. You oh no! You, you shouldn't ask questions Sorry. you don't know the answers to, Paul. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, so I started reading this book when I first started at the Journal, and so I, you know, was new to covering gold, and I found it very interesting because I was also trying to learn, you know, how gold responded to Fed action, how gold responded to the U.S. dollar, and um, I think it was also, you know, it was around the time when a lot of people were talking about low to negative interest rates around the world and how, you know, we didn't really know how that was going to play out. And so it really stood out to me because reading about these four central bankers um, and how their actions kind of interacted and led to the Great Depression made me realize, wow, you know, central bankers can really do a lot of damage if they get things wrong. So when, you know, Book Club came around, I thought it might make for a very interesting read. Yeah, so, it was so really... this one, it, what's interesting, a lot of interesting things about this one, the, the timing of its publication, and the author is uh, Leah Kut Ahmed, and what is really interesting, folks, is the next segment, we're going to be talking to the author. We are excited about that. So uh, Leah Kut had been working on this book for years, publishes it in 2010. I, I mean, when he thought of it, could not possibly have thought that, hey, I will time a book about the history of central bankers to the greatest crisis, central banking crisis of our times, but manages to time it. No, in in fact, he he was I think inspired to write the book by um, you know an article in the I think it was the New York Times, our, our rival publication. It was, it was Time Magazine. Time Magazine that referred to Alan Greenspan. Um, who was out? Uh, Robert Rubin was that? The oh, was that the Rubin, the Greenspan yeah. Rubin Summers the, Committee the, to Save the, the World? world. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and that's sort of what's inspired him. That was back in 1999. Yeah. And 
He was looking. He was looking at uh, the. This was the the emerging markets crash of the late '90s, and he was trying to wade through it. And he basically went went back uh, and started looking at previous depressions and how they came about, and and uh, got to this 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 uh, this time period. And I mean, I I thought this was a, a really interesting look. These 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 central bankers are very very colorful uh, characters that are really kind of drawn out, and it really makes you kind of think, uh, you know, a, a lot of people have these perceptions of central bankers as, like, puppet masters of the world, but they really do seem like this sort of, like, secret, uh, secretive group in this book here. Well, I mean, too, and one of the things that I think is interesting, and, and we can get into this further, was the adherence to the gold standard and how that, you know, led them to make decisions, policy decisions, that eventually, you know, sort of, you know, cause the Great Depression. Yeah, I mean, like that—that's the theme, right? The theme is—is is, I think that that shines through today is in this case it was the gold standard. It's the rules of the road, the map that these powerful financiers are following. Well, what happens when the map leads you straight off of a cliff? And in a lot of ways, right? I mean, that's the parallel that was so striking back in in 2010. I think when this was very well reviewed is you know just as today. Well, how do we how do we get off? of quantitative easing how do we how do we sort of write the ship and in a lot of ways it was it was shown that these central bankers are flying blind and 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 here we are again today right i mean it's really the parallels and it's really the colorful way that this is told through the lives of of people maybe let's talk about some of these people right who's who's who who are the favorite central bankers (laughs) oh i'm a montague norman man all the way you are there's no is, you're, you're such an Anglophile. Oh, such an Anglophile. Program. Yeah, typical. This is the head yeah. of the Bank typical. of England right here. Uh, <laughs> he's a he had a, he had a no, crazy mustache. And then there's Benjamin Strong, head of the New York Fed. That? that is, yeah, from, from a good Puritan family that came to Taunton, Massachusetts. I think in 1630. Wow, you always find a New yeah. England connection there, huh, Grocer? <laughs> yep. Hey, is book club spoiler free? And, uh, I, I, I don't want to. I think, we're, I think with history books, we are. I think we know how this one ends. Uh, <laughs> if anyone hasn't heard of the Great Depression, uh, close your ears now. <laughs> Spoilers. This doesn't work out for anybody. <laughs> um, ahead, I, I was surprised when Benjamin Strong died. I hadn't been up enough in my history, so I was like, oh, my God, they wrote him out. He, he passed away in 1928 for... Uh, those who do not know the history of uh, Benjamin Strong, <laughs> yes, and, and, and 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 then and this is one of the points. I mean, you know, they're called the Lord of Finance. They're you know, I think even you know the subhead uh, of it says the bankers that broke the world. But in many ways, they weren't the the people that broke the world. They're the people who were trying to, you know, um, save the world and didn't quite achieve that um, success. And 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 and. You, you know, I, and I think getting back to the gold standard is one of the interesting things was, you know, during the Great Depression when gold is sort of, you know, leaving the countries, they ended up taking monetary policy um, to hold on to, you know, gold, to staunch the flow of gold um, that in fact sort of, you know, it choked, it choked, yeah, choked the, the economies. Right, yeah. right, right. And going back to and Benjamin yeah. Strong, who's uh, he was the head of the New York Fed. 
uh, I mean, he seemed like kind of the least set in his ways, the least stubborn uh, in terms of adhering to the gold standard, less so than, than the heads of the central banks in, in Germany and France. But but then he, he kind of died in the lurch here in 1928, the year before everything kind of came crashing down, which was which was sort of a, seemed like a tragedy in itself. I'm also yeah. I was going to bring up the, just there's a nice factoid that I liked from the book about the German mark um, and inflation in Germany. I think what was it? Uh, the German when they when they actually converted to the new mark, it was one in the twenties. W- yeah, one trillion marks equaled one of the new uh, currencies. <laughs> wow, one trillion marks. Um, uh, I, that's I, called I wanna, runaway inflation. I, I want to get <laughs> Stephanie back in here. Stephanie has a bunch of yellow post-it notes in her copy of Lords of Finance. I she do. Is, I prepare. You are by far the the best prepared of all of us. <laughs> right, and um, and you know, talking about the gold standard. Ben and I were also talking about this and we can debate, you know, the merits and what people were thinking at the time and why, you know, the gold standard ultimately didn't work out. But one of my favorite anecdotes in the book was just at some point, you know, he mentions that they're having so many economic troubles because uh, because France, on one hand, you know, has so much gold and the Bank of England doesn't have enough gold. But in reality, all the gold is kept in the same vault in London and then earmarked to whoever it belongs to. And so the idea that, you know, the world is plunging into a depression because there's more gold on one side of a vault than another is just kind of this crazy idea that um, that's just influencing everything. Yeah, I really like there's a, there's a scene in there where, I don't know, they're, they're France and England are fighting about something and France demands England return some of its gold that's like has been moved over to the other side of the vault, and that's a big strong arm technique because England doesn't want to let any of the gold go. And then um, also, I mean, Ben, you can jump in here, but we were talking about why would everyone prioritize going back to the gold standard? But you know, one of the things that Grosser mentioned about you know the mark is that with all this inflation going on, what do you really have to hold on to at that time? It was more of the way I see it, a confidence thing is you have to have it pegged to something. Otherwise, people don't really know, you know, what to look at. And if everyone else is on the gold standard and we're not, what does that mean? I can, you know, kind of see why the panic would lead people to think we need to get back on the gold standard. But, you know, what do you guys think? I mean, it was it, it seemed like um, I mean, gold is just this thing that's kind of like dug up out of the ground and like in and of itself it doesn't really like have this innate value to it besides what people have kind of assigned to it and this idea that just the the amount of of gold that is actually dug up out of the ground would have some impact on uh, how much currency can go into circulation or in fact control it seems like sort of ridiculous and just I mean arbitrary by in sort of the lens of, hi- of hindsight here yeah it- Talk about that that anecdote you're talking that anecdote you were talking about, Stephanie. And think it made me off the top of my head. I just thought, like, what if you today substituted debt for gold in your example? And again, you know, you're just talking about entries in a ledger, and you know, talk about marching off a cliff. Like we're so obsessed with these ledgers that we are we will literally march off a cliff to adhere to some, you know. What is basically an imaginary line. Right. right. Some framework that Some people framework. have followed yeah. for a long time. Right. Why? Because they've followed it for a long right. time. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, even, you know, in the doc- introduction, uh, you talk about how a lot of this also has to do with psychology, you know, and how, how people perceive money. And so if you followed the standard for, or, you know, this metric for a long time, then that's what people trust. 
So. I mean, you know, I mean, listen, I mean, the other thing that's interesting is, like, this isn't an argument that was just taking place, you know, what, 80, 90 years ago. I mean, Ron Paul was bringing this up when he was running, you know, in 2008 for, for election, that we should return to the gold standard. This is like there are a lot of people that have... He, he didn't get very it. far with that argument, no. but you're right, he was making because, it. But, I mean, it's under the belief that it would keep it keeps government, it would keep the government small, it would keep, you know, the government more austere, it wouldn't be able to be, you know, spendthrift. I mean, the reality is there's not enough gold in the world right now the amount of treasuries that are out there. So, like, the, you know, you'd have yeah. to shrink the, you know, the U.S. economy quite a bit. Um, I don't think anyone would be terribly in favor of that. No. no. Uh, the, the other amazing thing about this is, is, is you know, you f- not that you forget it's a history, but, I mean, this, this is a history book. Well, and And it's a subject that you would think would be really kind of dry, right? Central bankers from 80 years ago. But I, I actually want to, like, he is a, is a phenomenal writer. I mean, I, I think Aaron was the one of the people that brought this up. Yeah. I mean, you read this book, he has great turns of phrase. But not only that, for someone who wasn't, a, you know, a historian either, um, you know, he was a hedge fund manager. Mm-hmm. Um, Leah Cut. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. His, the other, he, he just, it's so detailed and so well written. Um, it, it makes any professional writer um, <laughs> pretty jealous. <laughs> that's exactly what I said. Yeah, I said I was mad at him. That's, that's correct. Well, I mean, no. there are so so there are like four main characters in this book. We already talked about Benjamin Strong and Montague Norman a little bit, and then there's two more. Uh, Jalmart, I'm pronouncing this completely I wait wrong. I pronounce it. <laughs> His last name is Schacht. Yeah. Uh, yeah, head of the bank, uh, uh, the the Reichsbank in Germany, and then uh, uh, Moreau, the, the bank Emile. of France. Emile Moreau. Emile Moreau. And there was kind of actually a fifth main character too. Like he had, you know, John Maynard Keynes, and a lot of his theories. Right, like the foil to all the other, to all the central <laughs> bankers who are who are set in their ways. Yeah, if it was like a TV show, it would be like, and featuring John Maynard Keynes. <laughs> He's a featured character. Luke Perry is John Maynard Keynes. <laughs> All right, let's... But, uh, well, I was just going to... And I think we can get into this um, with Leah when he, he comes on the show, but one of the, I think, the most powerful things about this, and you, and you talked about the, the timing of this book, it, you know, I think published in 2010. Yeah. So... Pulitzer Prize winner, by right, the way. It, 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 it probably felt very relevant then right. a lot of what he's describing, I remember sort of feeling covering the financial crisis, but it continues to feel extraordinarily relevant, even this year with everything that is going on. Um, you know, there is, you know, with the nationalism that's sort of, you know, sweeping the world. Um, I mean, and I think that's what's sort of powerful about this book is like the lessons that you can sort of take. I mean, even I remember, I remember, you know, I think two years ago, we wrote the article about, like, you know, the, all the central bankers going to MIT's business school, having some kind of relationship with mm-hmm, MIT's mm-hmm. business school. And, like, all, you know, and this is around the world. This is, you know. Right. Um, and this was Draghi. This is Bernanke. This is all them. And them having, like, dinners together when they're meeting and, like, private dinners. And so it really, you know, I think, you know, we talked about, you know, that club being an exclusive club. I mean, it is amazing the bankers, the central bankers are more important, more powerful um, in the last decade than I think they probably ever have been yeah, um, yeah. or since at least th- that period. 
and you know everything that is going on in the world seems very applicable. Right. Or, yeah. It's terrible. Well, I, let's let's take a break because um, we have to. And when we come back on the other side, we will continue with Money Beats Book Club, talking about the Lords of Finance, written by Leakut Ahmed Ahmed, and he will be joining us for this segment. Courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. <laughs> Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Love tech? Dig gadgets? Then make tech news briefing from the Wall Street Journal a part of your day. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Money Beats Book Club. And a little programming note, next week we'll be interviewing the author William Cohen, who is author of a new book coming out called Why Wall Street Matters. Should be a fascinating conversation. You don't want to miss that one. But today we are talking on the book club. Our choice was Lords of Finance, The Bankers Who Broke the World by Leakut Ahmed, winner of the 2010 Pulitzer Prize. We were talking about it in the last segment. Now in this segment... We have because we don't we don't play games on book club. When we do book club, we do it right. So what did we do? We got the author himself, Leacut. How are you? Welcome to the show. Good, thank you. Um, thank so you for having I, me on. Yeah, no. Listen, we are very happy to have you on. There's a lot of uh, folks here who have read your book who really want a chance to talk to you. And I think uh, we're just going to kind of open it up, you know. And I think I want Stephanie to to go first. To ask Leah kind of questions, Stephanie, because Stephanie has is so well prepared for this. I was so impressed. You know, and it was also her choice of book. Right, right. It was Stephanie's choice oh. of the book. She's got her notes ready. She's got all these little post-it notes in the book. You have all these. T- so hey. uh, I'm going to let you kick it off. Stephanie. Yeah. Hey, Leah. Thanks for joining. I'm so glad right. that you're participating in this. Um, like I mentioned before, I read your book about a year ago, and I guess one of the things that I would love to hear from you is just if you see what kind of parallels you see you know, having written this book to, you know, the modern-day financial world? Um, I mean, I see more parallels, I think, with the lead-up to 2008. Uh, I'm not sure I, I, I see what the parallels are today. But, I mean, the parallels, to you know, in the decade leading up to 2008 were, were actually quite eerie. You know, we, in both cases, uh, we had a... Um, a, bo- a boom and a, a bubble um, in the uh, in the 1920s. It was uh, in the stock market. In the 2000s, it was real estate. Um, in both cases, it was caused by a slightly out of control international financial system. Um, and um, in both cases, um, the monetary authorities were slow to react to the bubble. Um, in part because they were trying to do too many things. Um, In the 1920s, they were trying to stabilize uh, European currencies, um, and and that led to them keeping interest rates too low. I'm not sure what they were trying to do in the 2000s, but -hmm. they basically, yeah, they they were focused very much on inflation and, and didn't focus enough on asset prices. Um, and that all led to a uh, bubble and then a crash. Um, and I suppose the big difference, obviously, is in the reaction. In the 1920s, they were um, they did not they they didn't act as lenders of last resort. 
uh, whereas in 2008 they did. So those, that's the story I think, uh, I think of. Um, I'm not sure what I would say at this precise moment about the parallels between the 20s and um, what's, what's going on now. You know, hey, this is Ben here, and and I know at the very end of your book, uh, you sort of I guess the book was published in 2009, right after the financial crisis had just hit, and we were sort of in the middle of it, and you sort of drew the direct comparison between sort of the sweeping banking crises in at the end of the 1920s, um, and and sort of the banking crisis that we had in 2008, and that was sort of the most direct comparison you wrote, and I'm curious. Uh, you know, it's been like eight or nine years since then. Um, you know, what's have you sort of changed your view on kind of what, you know, what from then is comparable to now um, from like when you published the book, basically? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that we have made um, the financial system a lot less susceptible to a run, certainly the U.S and European financial system, that then, um, you know, in 2008, we had uh, banks that were had way too many short-term liabilities or uh, banks and shadow banks uh, relative, uh, so were very susceptible to a run. They didn't have enough equity. Um, they, uh, uh, now, I think, post, the reforms, including Dodd-Frank, which we were about to get rid of, I suppose, um, I think the U.S. financial system is a lot more stable. I suppose the one vulnerability where there's a massive liquidity mismatch might be in the mutual fund business, where there's, um, you, know, you could easily see um, a run. Uh, I mean, mutual funds offer daily liquidity, and have highly illiquid assets, and if the right, if the circumstances were to prove to be uh, wrong, you could see, you could imagine some sort of crisis there. Uh, the big place I think where there's a potential crisis is obviously China, uh, because you've had a credit bubble there. What the repercussions for the rest of the world would be, who knows. Got, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the gold, you know, the gold standards and the adherence to that that caused a lot of, you know, that led up to the, you know, led to the Great Depression. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I'm actually, I mean, I, I think I tried to be somewhat sympathetic, right, to the dilemma that these people found themselves that they weren't complete fools, um, and essentially. They um, in the in the years after the First World War, Europe had bankrupted itself, and um, had uh, because of reparations, Germany faced this problem where um, it just had mass had to pay off massive amounts. I mean, ridiculously large amounts uh, to to the Allies, and eventually the only way they could find to do that was to print money. And that caused a um, hyperinflation. And that hyperinflation just spooked people who ran central banks uh, because uh, they said, look, the only way to restore confidence in the stability of a currency 
is to try to get back to gold. Uh, and they had abandoned the gold standard because of the need to finance the First World War. And by the way, the First World War was just a massive financial venture. Um, you know, all the European countries spent 50% of their GDP uh, for four years um, hmm. on, on, on fighting the war. And the only way they could sort of generate the finance, they couldn't do it by tax. They felt they couldn't do it by taxes, so they had to print money. So the question was how to restore confidence in currencies after an exercise like that. And they felt they had to go back to the gold standard. Uh, but the goals, but they went back at the wrong exchange rates. Um, and it meant that there just wasn't enough liquidity in the system that at the old prices of gold, there just wasn't enough cash. And so everyone was liquidity constrained and all the central banks would compete each other to get gold. And that caused a deflationary problem in the world. Um, and then when the crisis hit in 29 and there was a scramble for gold, that basically drove the world into a depression. Um, but they felt they couldn't get off the gold standard because they'd experienced the hyperinflation of the early 1920s. So they felt they were damned if they did and damned if they didn't. Yeah. The, only, the only comparable situation was, is someone like Greece. Okay. Where, you know, they, they just, you know, it's the choice between two terrible alternatives. Yeah, right. Hey, uh, Leah, Cut, you have a you had a career on Wall Street before that. You do um, you are a consultant hedge funders now. I mean, you you know you clearly have a, a finance background, and then you kind of have this book as well. And I, you have a couple other writings. But what made you go decide to uh, you know pick up pen and, and and start to write? Oh, you know, I'd always fantasized about becoming a writer, and uh, um, you know thought that at some point I would, uh, I would uh, you know, put down the phone and get off the trading desk and <laughs> pick up a pen. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they're very, they're very different types of professions. One, you have a much shorter attention span. You spend a lot of time surrounded with people, whereas as a writer, um, it takes four years to write a book, and uh, you spend a lot of time alone. Yeah, but it was uh, it's been fun. Uh, yeah, I would uh, just to sort of step back because like one of the things, and this is I think Paul alluded to you having a lot of fans in this room. We are all blown away, I think, by not just like the turn of phrase, but the research and the detail mm -hmm. that comes through in this book. You know, how long did you take? Did it take you four years to you know write it? How long did you take to research it? I mean, just sort of take that you know through. And were you also surprised? That, I mean, you won the Pulitzer Prize for history. Um, in this, that's a pretty good first um, first outing. Yeah. Okay. Well, to deal with the second second question first, <laughs> you know, I was surprised, and um, I probably intimidated myself <laughs> into sort of. Uh, <laughs> but I am getting back. I I have um, I am trying to work on another book, and um, I have much lower expectations for that. But. Um, the I work iteratively, so I don't go off for two years, do research, and then uh, write for a year or whatever. Uh, I try and, um, I mean, I spent a year researching the whole s subject and reading around. 
And then when I finally get down to it and I get down to detailed research, um, I research sections and then go and write them, and then go back and research other sections and write those and then go back and uh, revamp the whole thing. So it, it, it's a, uh, it, it allows you to have sort of some sort of uh, instant gratification, or not instant, but um, quicker gratification to see your work appearing on, on the page. Mm. Um, as to how um, this, the, the trick, I think, in this research exercise, um, in, in sort of is how to manage all of this research and how to put it all in a in one place so you can absorb it think about it and i tried the um, i went back to the tried and true uh method which is use three by five index cards uh, wow you must have a lot so of three by five index cards <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah i i had you know several thousand three by five index. How, how is that making it accessible because you sort the three by five index cards by subject, a Montague Norman. You know, I must have read five books about him and ten newspaper articles, and in each case, they would have a little description of him. And as soon as I got a description of Montague Norman, I would put it on a index card, and by the end, I'd accumulated whatever twenty-five index cards with little descriptions of Montague Norman, who's a character, who's wow. one of the central characters in the book. So, and I sorted them by subject matter. So the subject matter was Montague Norman appearance. Um, and then when I came to write it, it was all in one place, and I could, uh, um, I could just sort out the index cards, put them on my desk, and then write from there. You know, what, one question I have is, I think... Partial, part of the reason this this narrative flows so well has to do with the way that it's told through these four very strong characters. And at what point did you saw, did decide to sort of make it, tell the story through the four, and was that a, the, a product of the way that you were doing the research? Did you Or did you envision it like that always? Or, no, or? That, that came at the very beginning. I mean, that hmm. came sort of as an inspiration at the very beginning. I think I described this in the book, that the idea came to me when I saw that um, famous Time magazine cover with the Committee to Save the World, mm -hmm. uh, which had uh, uh, Larry Summers, Alan Greenspan, and Bob Rubin on right. it. And uh, it seemed to me that... And I, I'd been reading about the 1920s and 29, and about a meeting of these four central bankers, or how these four central bankers would meet frequently, and I said, wouldn't it be great to be able to tell the story uh, through these four men? And um, it's a way of taking a very big topic and, you know, reducing it to a more human scale, and I think it helped that they were, each came from a different country, so you got a window into the problems of Germany or problems of France or Britain or the U.S. Uh, through the eyes of these, each of these four individuals. Hey, uh, Aaron, I don't think we've let, let you get one question in. Why don't you, <laughs> we'll, we'll let you get the last question in. The last question? Yeah, uh, we've got time well, for one more. Pressure. 
I know it is. Um, it is. Well, we quite, uh, I mean, I, I guess uh, I'd like to know if, if there's a follow-up. Are you doing anything else? Uh, uh, we'll see another book from you. Uh, yeah, well, I, uh, I, uh, I'm working on a book about the financial crises of the Gilded Age. Mm. Ah. Uh, so it's sort of a prequel. It's, uh, there was a period from 1873 to 1896 where globally there were seven financial crises, one after the other in, uh, in that 23-year period. Um, so uh, it's sort of a, uh, it's like a prequel. The central bankers don't play so much of a role. Bankers play more of a role. So uh, the Rothschilds figure prominently, the Bearings, uh, wow. J.P. Morgan, uh, some of the rogues on Wall Street uh, uh, also figure prominently. So that's that's what I'm working on oh. at the moment. Jay Gould. Will, will, William Jennings Bryan? William Jennings Bryan, yeah. yeah. And and the whole, you know... Uh, the Cross of Gold? Cross of Gold. Yeah, of course. Oh, that... that uh, well, we will look for that one. That one should be interesting. Uh, Leica, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. This was a, quite a treat for us. Well, thank you. And uh, yeah, you yeah know, I'm going to listen to your next one because uh, uh, Bill Cohen's a friend of mine. So. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm sorry, Ben. Ben has one one last thing to say on the way out. What's up, Ben? Uh, well, I just want to throw in a little plug for the next book club book here. Uh, so we chose the one for next time. For those uh, listening at home and want to read along, the book is called Deals from Hell, M&A Lessons That Rise Above the Ashes uh, by Robert F. Bruner. It's a sort of a, it's a look at 12 mergers uh, that failed um, and just sort of why they failed and a, and a big analysis into that. So wow. right. uh, take a look out for that one. Uh, uh, somewhere down the road, we'll be talking about deals. All right, cool. Everyone, thank you for listening as always, and we'll catch up with you soon.